the right last name right, Malala Yousafzai. We got a picture of her. Um, in 2012, when Malala was 15 years old, she was riding on a school bus when a Taliban fighter boarded the bus and shot her. I believe shot her in the face, actually. Uh, he shot her because of her blog. It was because of a blog that she was writing. It was a blog that was writing about detailing her life of living as a teenager in Taliban-occupied region where she lived. And along with she was writing about uh, wanting to stay in school and she was advocating for girls and to, for girls to have the same chance the boys had for education. Now, what this murder attempt did, though, what it did, it, it uh, sparked national and international outpouring of support for Malala. Actually, the, the next year, a German newspaper wrote in, and said this, that she was becoming the most famous teenager in the world. Malala became um, a prominent education activist, and she founded the Malala Fund, a nonprofit organization. In 2013, uh, she co-authored a book called I Am Malala. It was an international bestseller. How many of you heard? Anybody heard? Have you heard? Some of you have heard of Malala? Yeah. Very, very intriguing girl. Very amazing the influence she's had. And at age 17, Malala became the youngest recipient ever of the Nobel Peace Prize for her work with children's rights and for girls' education. Uh, then again, in, 2015, in 2015, though, she was, she was part of a documentary, a subject of a documentary that was called He Named Me Malala. And in 2013, 2014, and 2015, issues of Time Magazine featured her as one of the most in influential people in the world as a teenager. Now, there's a good chance that there is a young lady out there somewhere that sees and has seen what Malala has done and is doing and really admires her for what she has done and what she is still doing. And she wants to be just like her. She wants to completely follow in Malala's footsteps. She wants to change lives by standing up against injustice no matter the cost. So this is what happens is maybe this young lady, she goes out and she reads everything and watches everything she possibly can about Malala. She joins similar organizations. She makes changes to her lifestyle in order to do everything she can to emulate Malala. Now, most of us would say that we admire Malala, right? We admire her for what she has done and what she represents. But probably not many of us here are going to go to such extremes as that to follow in her footsteps. You see, there is a huge difference between being an admirer and being a follower. A big difference. An admirer is fascinated or very impressed with something or somebody, where a follower is devoted and fully dedicated I mean, people we admire, we applaud those people, don't we? We applaud people. Think about the people that come to your mind that you admire, and we, we applaud them. But those we follow, we wholeheartedly sacrifice for. We even are willing to surrender our lives for people that we truly follow. Now, you see, most people that were in the crowd that Jesus, when Jesus was delivering the Sermon on the Mount... Now, for the most part, most of these people probably admired him. They admired him for the things they'd seen. They admired him for the things that he was saying. 
And as we're going to even see at the very last verse we look at today, it says that they were fascinated. They were impressed by Jesus. But here's the thing. Jesus was not looking for admirers. He was looking for followers. And this is a choice that he presents to his hearers because he comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount here. And he presents to us as his most famous sermon comes to a close. The choice is simply to be fascinated or impressed by him or to become a wholehearted follower of him by actually doing the things and following through with and putting into action the things that he has been teaching. It's what we call a disciple. That's what a disciple is. A person that we've been talking about these last few months, this kingdom of living, this kingdom of heaven, kingdom living. So what we're going to see in today's passage, we're going to see Jesus using four different contrasting scenarios in order to help us to truly understand the difference between an admirer of Jesus and a wholehearted follower of Jesus. And I hope that by the time we get to the end of this thing, you will see the really the difference that there really is between these two. And I really believe this is important because the is that there are many, many people out there that believe they are followers of Jesus. You say, are you a follower of Jesus? They say, yes. Are you a Christian? They would say, yes. But the reality is, the truth is, that they're only admirers. They really only admire. So many people, I believe, fall into that. So today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7. So turn your Bibles, if you have them, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. We're actually going to be looking at the final. We're going to be closing out this gigantic sermon, this three-chapter sermon that Jesus has been uh, preaching to the crowds here. So let's jump right in. So the first contrasting scenario that Jesus uses to describe the difference between being an admirer and a follower are two different gates, okay? A wide gate and a narrow gate, one that leads to eternal destruction and one that leads to eternal life. Let's look, at, let's look at the first two verses. Verses 13 and 14 say, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Jesus is telling us here that the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Remember what we've seen, we've been talking about, we've been describing it as this complete reign and rule of God in our hearts and minds. He's saying this must happen through a narrow gate, okay? So what is it, what is it about this narrow gate? What is it about this narrow gate that makes it so hard? I don't know about you, but when I read things like this, I'm a visual person. I try to get visuals in mind. What does that look like? Why is it so hard to get through this gate? And why are those amount of people that find it so few? Well, really, it's simple. It's because doing, doing this by going into the narrow gate goes against our sin nature. It totally goes against it. Humanly speaking, it feels restricted. It requires stripping ourselves of things such as a consuming desire for earthly pleasures, for selfishness, and for pride. Even later on in Matthew, Jesus says this. He says, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, what's, got, what's he got to do? Deny himself. Wow, that's hard. Deny himself. Take up his cross 
and, for, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Okay, so entering the narrow gate that leads to life, to this kingdom living, requires self-denial. It requires obedience. It requires humility. Things that, I don't know about you, maybe I'm just preaching to myself, that are not very easy to do. Things that are not, in my own human flesh, do not want to go that route at all. It requires a complete, wholehearted surrender to Jesus. None of this half-baked stuff. It really requires wholehearted surrender. And explaining the way a person enters into the kingdom of God and comes into relationship with God, Jesus made this very audacious, familiar to all of us statement. And it says this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Some people can get there another way. No. I'm the only way. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That is a narrow gate. And this, I, there's a whole, I, I, the hardest part of this whole thing, this is a whole nother tangent, certainly we can go on, how the world will look at that and say, that makes absolutely no sense. That's crazy. But this, these are the, this is the truth of a gospel. It is crazy to the world, to the world is perishing. Jesus is the only way. Does it sound narrow-minded? I guess you could say that. But if the king of the universe is going to tell me this is the way to have eternal life, I have a feeling that's probably a good, it's probably a legit source. So that's what he's saying here. But now on the contrary, the wide gate, we see that this wide gate, look what he says, he says it's easy, spacious. It's the way of the, it's the, way of the crowd. It's, it's lined with these false promises, these seductive false promises that appeal to our sin nature, that stroke our egos. It's seen as the road of freedom, or it's the road to happiness. It is actually the road to slavery. In referring to the wide gate, one commentator said this. I thought this was very interesting. He said, the old sin nature all that it contains and all its accessories can easily march right through. It is the gate of self-indulgence. So wide is that gate that an enormous, clamorous multitude can enter all at once, and there will be plenty of room to spare. That is the wide gate. The point here is that it's our nature it's a total nature for all of us to prefer the wide gate and its easy access to what appears to be narrow and constricting. Have you ever had that happen where you're talking to someone about the faith, you're talking to someone about Jesus and what it takes to come to God, and you, you, can, you can see it on their face, wow, that sounds narrow-minded, wow, that sounds constricting. That's why it's so difficult. Put it this way, say you're on this Okay, and you have these, all this luggage with you. You know, you have these bags with you, and they contain all the stuff that you want to take with you forever. Okay, your, their bags are packed with everything you treasure, including not only some of your favorite possessions, but all your pride, all your selfishness, all your ego. And you come to this, you come to this big wide gate, 
It's this beautiful gate. It looks wonderful. It looks so easy to travel through. And near the entrance of this, of this gate, you're coming to it, you see the signs that say, freedom, fun, come on in. Then you notice off to the side, there's this little sign stuck in the ground, and it reads this way to the narrow gate that leads to life. Hmm. I wonder, what is, what is that all about? So you look down the road, and you see this small, little, narrow gate, okay? And it really, it looks strangely inviting and strangely desirable, and you realize right away, though, wait a second, there is absolutely no way that I'm going to be able to take all my luggage through that small gate. There's just no way. And you also notice, written on a sign near that gate are these words. Death to self and sorrow over sin. You think to yourself, wow, there's something about that narrow gate that seems right. It just seems right, yet, man, it looks so constrictive and it won't allow me to live my life the way that I want to live it. Do you see now how and why so many people choose the wide gate. That's the mindset that is happening. Yet the problem is, on the other side of those signs that said freedom and fun really are eternal death and eternal sorrow. You don't see those until you go through. Jesus is saying that the true follower or disciple of his enters through the narrow gate that leads to life. Life in him. Okay, second one. Second contrasting scenario that Jesus uses to describe the difference between being an admirer and a follower is that of bearing good or bad fruit. Look what he says in verses 15 through 20. He says, be aware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them from their fruits. Are grapes gathered from, a thorn, from thorn bushes or, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. See, what Jesus is telling us here is that true Followers or disciples of Jesus bear good fruit. We bear good fruit. Jesus begins here. He starts off by talking about these false prophets or those who speak really in his name, in the name of God. But really what's happening on, the, on outward seems similar to everybody else, similar without out there talking about God. They seem to have it all together. They quote the Bible. They talk about Jesus. They say all the right stuff. But what he's saying here is their true intent is to lead people astray by telling them the things that they want to hear in order so they can get what they want from them. They pose as followers. They're posers. They pose as followers. And yet, best, they're admirers because they see that they can get what they can get from other people, how they can benefit from being associated with Christianity, being associated with Jesus, and being associated with God. Jesus says that the test of someone who speaks in the name of God 
is by the fruit that they bear. Do their words, do their actions, does their lifestyle match those of Jesus? That's where the litmus test is. You see, in a sense, what Jesus is telling us to do is to be fruit checkers, okay? We're supposed to do a fruit check with every single person that claims to speak in the name of God. Everybody, whoever they are, including me. You need to be checking my fruit, okay? That's what the Bible says, making sure that we aren't teaching anything or any doctrine at all that doesn't agree with the true teachings of Jesus or living in a way that's contrary. When you see someone that's speaking God's word, and they're like, you look at their life, because they might be able to say everything, but you look at their life and you kind of scratch your head and you kind of go, that, that doesn't seem to jive. That is a, my friends, that is a huge red flag, huge red flag. And we need to investigate, not judge like we talked about a few weeks back, but we need to thoroughly investigate. Because really, the slightest deviation from the truth of Scripture can lead to catastrophic results. Catastrophic. It's like that old analogy, you know, of a, a giant boat, if it's a, like a tanker, if it's just one degree off, okay, it's one degree off, no big deal. But as it goes further and further and further, it gets so far off, and that's what happened. That's how cults, that's how cults, you think people just go, gosh, wake up in the morning, I just want to join a cult. Is there some false teaching out there that I could just totally be gullible and suck my life into, and let me just take me away and do all sorts of, no. Well, maybe there's a couple of people, but no, most people don't do that. It's because they're being taught the truth, some truth with just enough deception in there to lead astray. Some of you might have even grown up in a church like that. It happens all the time. Talk about legalism and things like that that people are bound to like shackles. This is what Jesus is talking about here. Know by your fruit. That's why you, we all need to be, you and I need to be faithful and diligent in studying the scriptures. Please, 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 do not allow or have all the input that you have of your learning about God come from what, I, what is set up here and the Bible study you go through at church. You and I need to be diligently studying God's word. We need to be in it. Because I can tell you right now, the devil is so crafty. You can think, I've grown up in church. I know so much. Doesn't matter. Does not matter. He will take the slightest deviation. One thing someone says that you admire that is not true, but seems true, and take you out with that. The devil rarely comes through the front door. Rarely. He loves the little vent on the side of the house that you forgot was even there. That's how he works. You see, just as healthy trees bear good fruit, so too those that are truly unhealthy are going to bear bad fruit. Okay, now, and we have actually seen, been looking through on the Mount, what fruit is. You might be saying, okay, what does it mean to bear good fruit? What does that actually look like? Well, we could talk, that's a whole nother, that's a sermon series for crying out loud. But we've even seen it in this, in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus help it. It's things like, been looking at like uh, being salt and light in the world. That's fruit. Dealing appropriately with our anger and with our lust. Loving our enemies. Not demanding revenge, 
giving to the needy, laying up treasures in heaven instead of here. Not judging other people, but living, like, living by the golden rule. All things that we've looked at in the last few months. This is bearing fruit. So the basic assumption in these verses is that true followers of Jesus will produce and bear good fruit. But now Jesus is going to drill down even more. So the third contrasting scenario Jesus uses to describe the difference between an admirer and a follower has to do with those who think that they're insiders, but they actually aren't. Look at these verses, just verses 21 to 23. He says, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prop in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? This is Jesus speaking. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Like I said, now Jesus is going deep. He's drilling down deep to the heart of true discipleship here by showing us that true followers of Jesus or disciples do the will of God, okay? True followers do the will of God. Here Jesus is talking about people who not only profess allegiance to Jesus as their Lord, but whom can also back up their claims, okay? These people have not only said, yes, I believe, maybe they've even prayed a prayer, Maybe they've done all that, and they can back it up with so-called fruit or these mighty achievements all carried out in his name. You know, these are people that perhaps grew up in the church. They've got baptized. They went on retreats. They attend Bible studies. They're a leadership at the church. Look what Jesus says to them. I never knew you. Wow. That is harsh. And notice to see people are, these people, that look at, they're just as surprised as anyone else that Jesus rejects them. You notice they're like, but, but Lord, Lord, they're so surprised. They thought, well, we're in. We're, we're totally in. They thought we're doing all the right things. We're saying all the right things. We're, do, we're even doing it in, you know, when I prayed, I made sure I said, in Jesus' name. We did it all. We must be in. Not only that, he goes on to call them workers of lawlessness, or in some of your versions, evil doers. Wow. See, their behavior, as noble as it appears to everybody else and even to themselves, is actually what one commentator I read this week said this. He says, it's merely a veneer on a life of fundamentally, that is fundamentally opposed to the will of God. These aren't rogue people he's talking about here. These are people that you know right away, oh man, there's no way, they're, in, they're not in. These are people that themselves and us are saying, they're in. We're part of this family, we're all together. And Jesus is saying, no, they are not in. I think we see from this example how easy it is to be deceived in believing that we are true followers of Jesus. What's this going to do? I really think that um, this tells us, <laughs> I've told this to people often, I think we're going to be shocked at who is in heaven and who isn't in heaven. 
I don't know what that shock's gonna feel like, but I think we're gonna be surprised at who's there and who's not. Well, of course they're in. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, all those things they did, all those things they said, they've got to be in. That's not the case. Because according to these verses, just because a person makes a profession of faith and even goes through the motions of Christian discipleship does not mean that they are truly followers of Jesus. I know this is hard to hear. For some reason, how do we know? How do we know? And we see that it's, we, it's really hard to know. How do we know if someone's truly a follower, disciple of Jesus, whether they're an insider or an outsider, where the truth is so often we can't tell. That's just the reality. Kingdom living is an inward working of God that man itself itself in more than just doing good things. Now, we know there's parts of the Bible that say, show me your faith, you know, faith, there needs to be works that go along with that faith, but there's more to it than that. According to Jesus, it means we do the will of God. Now, belief in Jesus, obviously, as Lord, is critical. That is critical for those of us who follow him and to be able to follow him. But so too is living out the will of God. I know that what you guys are thinking, some people are thinking, wait, there's, I thought I just had to have faith and believe. Well, yes, that's true. That's a part of it. But there is so much more. I think the evangelical movement in America has so many ways has been duped. And people have been fooled into this cheap grace, as they call it, to get their fire insurance. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. Jesus demands so much more. What it means is that our faith in Jesus impacts everything. It impacts everything that we do, everything about how we live our lives. If you want to know who a disciple is, you want to know who a follower of Jesus is, you will know by how their faith is impacting every area of their life. Not that they're perfect, but it's being impacting every part of their life. It transforms our approach to our job, to our friendships, to our marriage, to our parenting, to our sexuality, to finances, everything. There's no such thing as being a follower of Jesus and say, this is what Jesus controls, this is what I control. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. can't happen. And that's what Jesus is saying here. People say, I, I, I'm in. I've been around forever. I prayed the prayer. I serve at the church. What, all these things, I'm in. He's saying, no, that's not how it works. The Apostle Paul helps us to better to do the will of God. When he told the church in Rome this, he said this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, to have our minds renewed means be able to understand and embrace all that God is commanding in Scripture, not just parts of it. If our mind is renewed, we're going to slowly be able to understand all the things that he is telling us. John Piper says this. He says, without a renewed mind, we will distort the Scriptures to avoid their radical for self-denial and love and purity and supreme satisfaction in Christ alone. Man, that says it all right there. So true. You can have read every Bible plan, read through the Bible plan out there. But if your mind has not been transformed by the Spirit of God, 
being duped. As he says here, you're, you're being led astray, not being transformed. The only way that we can have our minds renewed in such a way is to truly allow God in any situ- all the situations in our life to know if we, if you want to know, this is a good, if, I, know, I talk to young people all the time and say, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I'm graduated from college. I don't know. I'm from high school or college. I don't know what God's will for my life. Or someone becomes a Christian. What is God's will for my life? Or someone comes, I've been a Christian a long time, but I'm finally wanting to know, what is God's will for my life? What do I do? Well, here's how we know. Here's how we can know. Not only by making this profession of faith, not only saying, I believe in Jesus, but allowing the Holy Spirit to break through the strongholds in our mind and drive us towards Christ-exalting truth, to be willing to say, Holy Spirit, break down the walls. You, I hope you believe that. We, you know we all have blind spots, right? We all have blind spots. We have blind spots that blind us to our blind spots. I know I do. So the only way to seek through those blind spots is to allow the Holy Spirit of God to transform our minds. And that has a lot of things involved. That means being involved in, in, with other Christians. That means listening to God's word. That means allowing people to speak into our lives. All these things are so important. And it only happens when we allow the Holy Spirit to transform and renew our lives, really as we bathe ourselves in God's word. Now, this isn't a pastoral guilt trip to go read your Bible more. This is just an exhortation to let you know it's not going to happen if you don't. It's not. Christianity is not about hoping something will happen without doing anything about it. We want to have our minds renewed. We want to change. If you're a young person sitting back there, you guys are, wherever you guys are, and you want to have God help you. How do I be a teenager in the midst of all this? How do I be a single person in all this? How do I deal with life? How do I deal with my career falling apart? How do I deal with my marriage being difficult? You bathe yourself in God's word. Because that's the power. That's where the truth comes from. All right, let's look at the fourth one. Fourth contrasting scenario, the last one that Jesus used to describe the difference between being an admirer and a follower has to do with those who actually respond to Jesus' words versus those who do not. Let's look at the verses 24 to 27. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now here's, this is Jesus, this is the final words. These are his final words of this long three chapter sermon that he's been giving here, okay? And Jesus leaves us with this simple yet demanding choice here. Hear and ignore or hear and put into practice. Hear and ignore or put, hear and put into practice. And the reality is this is literally, this is literally a make or break this choice, Okay, this is a make or break decision with really eternal consequences. 
Familiar verse James 1, says this, be doers of the word, not hearers only. And I love this last two words, deceiving yourself. He could have just left it right there, huh? Be doers of the word and not only hearers. Oh, that's a great idea. But when we do that, he tells us we deceive ourselves. You see, when we hear Jesus' words but don't put them into practice, we are deceiving ourselves into thinking that everything is okay. Things aren't that bad. But when we put the mirror up of God's truth and God's powerful word in our life, we just go, oh, it's bad. <laughs> My sin nature is bad. That was one of the best things I thought this camp speaker did. I, like I said, I've heard hundreds of camp speakers probably. This guy, one of the best things he did for the first two days, just grinded in a fun and great way on just depravity and the grossness of our sin. Remember, guys, the grossness, the blender? It was just, it was just the grossness. Of our, and then he brought in God's mercy and God's grace. See, if we don't understand how bad we are, if we don't understand how bad we are, all, how, how destructive and disgusting our sin nature is, if we don't grasp that, we'll never understand how much we need God's grace. We need God's mercy. We need his love. And that's what the word of God does to us. So I'm not telling you, go read your words so you can feel horrible about yourself. Go read God's word. Spend time in God's word so you can get a true picture of yourself and of God. So you can feel terrible about your sins. So you can come to the point where, I've told people before, the only way I've been able to conquer some sins in my life is come to a place where I absolutely hate that sin. And I pray, God, help me to hate that sin. But that only happens as I read God's word and, I, and he shows me, wow, that is really, that is depraved. I need you, Jesus. Is it making sense? It's so powerful. His word is so powerful. Once again, those who profess faith in Jesus can all look alike. We all look alike a lot of times on the outside. Respectable church members, even church leaders serving in the church, all happen. Yet what this passage is telling us is when the storms come, those times of difficulty, those times of struggle, those times of disaster, of heartbreak, that's when the truth is revealed concerning whether we've been doers of his word, having built our house on the rock, or have we just simply been hearers, taking it in, going, hey man, brother, that sounds great. Yeah, oh, convicted. You know, we're doing stuff like that but we're not actually doing anything about it and building our house on the sand. You see, as a doer of God's word, you're building your life on a firm foundation. So when that weather comes, when that bad weather comes, you're, a lot, you're able to get through that still with sorrow and heartache, but indescribable peace, indescribable joy that can only come because you've built your house on the rock, on Jesus. But if you hear God's word, if you hear the words of Jesus and you choose to ignore them and build your life on your career, on your success, on your reputation, on self-indulgence, anything other than Jesus and his word, when that storm comes, and it will, over and over again sometimes, your life will collapse because it's built purely on sand. Let me ask you, how is your foundation? Is your life built on Jesus and his word 
on not just hearing the truth, but putting it into practice in every single area of your life. Not saying, God, I'm so willing to you help me with this, but this over here, oh, not really. If you really want to experience the life that he's offering, it's saying all of it. Because the truth is that only in Jesus are found the words of life, words of power that can transform every area of our life forever. All right, really fast as we close. Let's look at these last two verses where Matthew now jumps in with his own words. Jesus is done. Sermon's over, okay? Offering's been taken. We're ready to go, okay? Children have been dismissed. All's happened. Now he says he's going to sum it all up, this whole discourse on kingdom living in these last two verses. Look at verses 28 and 29. He says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, look what's happening here. He gets done talking, and this crowd, they were astonished. They were, they were absolutely blown away by Jesus' teaching because he spoke, it says here, with authority. Now, this word, of authority, this word authority, actually, it denotes power. Okay, it says they sensed that he was speaking with power. Let me ask you another question. Are you astonished? Are you amazed? Are you blown away by Jesus and his words? Are you absolutely good? Good. Are you blown away by them? I hope you are. If you aren't, though, I want to challenge you. I just want to gently challenge you to spend some time in his word. Get into it. Talk to other people about it because that's the make you crave it even more and more and more. There's certain things in life that the more we do them, the more we crave them. This is one of them. If we're allowing ourselves to not only hear it, but do it, this is one of those things. I want to know more than, than get into it. He's, that's how it works. Remember, Jesus isn't looking for admirers. He's looking for wholehearted followers, those who enter through the narrow gate, those who are bearing good fruit, those who are doing the will of God, and those who are putting Jesus' words into action. I want to challenge all of us this morning. If you're looking to move forward in this, if you're looking to move from being simply an admirer to a follower, I want to encourage you and challenge you to start today plug into ministries that can help you with that. You know what a great way to do it? There's going to be people right up here praying after the service. I would encourage you. It's a matter of people. Anybody sees you? Wait, I'm a pillar of the church. I'm going to go get prayer for being, uh, oh my gosh, there's so much more at stake than that. Come up here and pray. Ask these folks to pray with you, to help you, to move you into being more of a follower and less of an admirer. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for just these challenging words. Jesus, we're so grateful for this incredible sermon, this sermon that, wow, what, what an incredible challenge it is to us. And we thank you, God, that it's not something that we do on our own strength at all, because that's impossible. So we thank you, God, that you've given us the power, the power of your Holy Spirit to help us to understand your words, to help us to understand your will for our lives. I pray for all of us in this room, God, that as we fall, forgive us for falling into being admirers many times and not, not living our lives as followers. I say, pray that for myself, God. I just pray that you'd help us all 
to desire more and more to be in your word so that we can fall deeper and deeper in love with you and become true followers of yours. And it's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Why don't you all stand with me as we...